We're happy to have you back. We have a real treat today to bring you an in-person visit from our founding father, George Washington. He was the true pioneer and leader for the cause of liberty. We're also excited to announce two new events coming up Saturday, September 18th in Lehigh, Utah, and Friday, October 1st in Midway, Utah at the Zermatt Resort. Tickets are now on sale at comefollowme2021.com. You can buy a ticket to attend in person with a beautiful luncheon, or you can attend virtually anywhere in the world by purchasing a virtual ticket. Welcome to our podcast. As promised today, we're going to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about the Founding Fathers and their involvement in setting a foundation for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ through our prophet, Joseph Smith. We are honored today to have with us the first President of the United States, Mr. George Washington. Mr. President, thank you for being with us today. Most honored, sir. I'd like to uh, begin our discussion today by perhaps starting with your early life, your family life, what it was like to live during the early to mid-1700s. Would you share with us just a little bit of uh, your thoughts and memories of those times? Well, certainly I will. Understand that we were not part of the aristocracy, as it were, nor were we part of the plebeian masses. We were of the gentry of the uh, Virginia countryside, farmers uh, owning a, a large plantation. My father was uh, Augustine Washington, and uh, my mother was Mary Ball. I was born in um, 1732 on, uh, depending on how you'd like to define it, sir, uh, February the 11th or February the 22nd. I understand you've had some sort of an adjustment in your calendar, which is, of course, rather annoying to me. But nevertheless, I had a large family. We had 11 siblings. Uh, we were very close to each other. Unfortunately, we're not a very long, live family. They tended to die very young. In fact, I lived longer than anybody else in my family. I had, however, particularly a relationship with uh, my dearest brother was Lawrence. He was my idol. My father died when I was only 11 years old, and so I was left to fall back upon male companionship of my brother. It was a wonderful life, quite frankly. We lived in a place where I could enjoy all of my hobbies. I eventually became very enamored of uh, fox hunting, and uh, I had my own stable of horses and stable of, um, of dogs as well. Very good. Um, Mr. President, your, uh, your military conquests and accomplishments are, are well documented, well documented, but perhaps you would share a thought or two relative to um, those events and what stands out in your mind as perhaps your greatest accomplishments with regards to your military career. Well, I would say, first of all, getting into the Army at all, because uh, my brother became a member of the British Navy. My mother was deeply opposed to that. She did not want two of her sons going on board, and so she forbade me to join the British Navy, and I ended up going into the Army, serving um, the British forces as a colonel of the Virginia militia at various points. I was very interested in being a member of the military, and if you like to talk about later on, I'll have to give you some pieces of that, but the most important thing, of course, was learning. For a military man as for anybody else, your ability to learn and to grow is the most important thing that can possibly be part of your character. Tell me, if, if I were an infantry man at Valley Forge, what would my life have been like with you? Short. <laughs> we lost 7,000 men at Valley Forge. It was the crucible that built the American Army that would eventually go on to victory. 
we had almost nothing in the way of food. We had nothing in the way of uh, clothing. And 7,000 men died during that period of time, a short winter. I remember in particular my sentry who stood outside my door guarding my life with his um, every night he would march back and forth in front of my dwelling while I was inside with Jonathan Marble, my footman. And when he was doing so, in the bitter cold, this gentleman had uh, uh, no coat, and so he wrapped a blanket around his shoulders. His pants, uh, pantaloons were uh, torn almost to immodesty, so he wrapped a tablecloth around his legs. He had no shoes, and so basically what he had to do was he wore rags around his feet. And I knew that he was always on the job because every morning I'd come out and I would see a trail of blood leading to the left and to the right where this man had guarded my life all night long, sacrificing his own feet in my care. And I remember one morning I woke up and uh, Jonathan and I uh, decided to leave the tent to go and perform our devotions to our God as we did every morning. And as I stepped forward out of my tent here, I found this man lying on the ground, convulsing, dying of starvation in front of my very eyes. And so I knelt on the ground and I held this man's head in my lap and I spoke such words of comfort to him as I could as he passed into the next realm. And when he had died, I turned to Jonathan. I said, Jonathan, you must understand this man's name will certainly never be written in the books of history, but I tell you that his name is written in the halls of heaven in letters of gold ten feet high. The sacrifice was huge, but it was what built us into a tough and strong army that could stand up to the finest that the world could send against us. As far as your military career is concerned, what, uh, what was the turning point? What was the, what was the pinnacle that uh, that pushed the war one direction or the other, and what was what was as far as you're concerned, what was the what was the high point? You seek uh, information about our struggle for independence. Yes, we very nearly lost the war in the first battle, the first pitch battle of uh, Long Island. Um, we were a bunch of amateur farmers and uh, you know the shopkeepers who were fighting against the finest military. Uh, force on the planet. We had no navy. The British had hundreds of ships. We were pinned up against the shore of the East River, and the British knew they were about to gulp us down in one gulp, that we had no chance of victory or even survival. And so they pinned us in against the river and prepared to attack us. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I think you could call it the grace of God, a fog rose up between us and the British forces, completely encompassing a pea soup type fog. And the British held back because they said, well, they're not going anywhere anyway. The British Navy was behind us in the river. And behind that fog, a great wind arose and pushed the British Navy back. And as the night fell, I pulled out every boat we could possibly find and we took that army, our army, and we evacuated across the river. It took the entire night. And as the sun started to rise, the very last man off the very last boat was George Washington. As I stepped up on the shore, the fog rose almost like magic. And the British looked with astonishment. We saw them on the other side of the river, and they said, it seems as though a miracle. It seems as though the hand of God had lifted these people out. 
Eventually, one of the British generals, I believe it was General Clinton, uh, wrote to King George. He says, we cannot beat these people. Whenever we attack, they retreat. When we retreat, they attack. He said, give it up. And so that was when I realized that we might have something more than simple power of man behind us, but something much greater than that. We could not have survived without divine intervention. Very good. Mr. President, when you were asked then at the completion of the war, the victory, to serve as President of the United States, these United States. Do you need to remind me? <laughs> I, you set a standard for presidents to follow and, and such things. Tell us a little bit about that experience. First of all, you must understand I did not want to be president at all. I wanted to go home and be a farmer. I had children and uh, my wife to take care of, and I wanted to be just a common man out there. And uh, you recall that uh, at one point I resigned from the uh, Continental Army at the end of the battle, and King George, when he found out about it, he says, good heavens, that is the greatest man of the last century. And Napoleon Bonaparte, who was not yet in power in France, wrote and said, this man was the greatest man in the last millennium. When I became president, I wanted desperately not to become president. In fact, I wrote my farewell address to, uh, only two years into my uh, presidency. So the standard is, first of all, no lust for power. Surrender it gracefully. Do what you can. But don't seek to aggrandize yourself. And rely upon God. Speaking of God, tell us a little bit about your inauguration and what you wanted to see done with regards to uh, mm. that formality? Well, first of all, when I took the inauguration, I came up to the stand, and I was not dressed as you see me today, sir. I was dressed as a common farmer in the brown cotton homespun suit of an American farmer. And as I approached the stand, I saw on the stand all the nobility of America, my great friends, dressed in every color of the rainbow in the finest silks and satins. And as I came closer, they looked at me, poor old farmer Washington, dressed like a farmer. And they became very quiet in embarrassment. And finally, John Adams, who uh, was a great, great patriot, obviously, but just a little bit stuffy and prickly at times, came up to me and he said, um, General Washington, I don't understand. Why dress you so plainly on so auspicious an occasion? Well, I turned to John. I said, well, John, you're most handsome this day while you and my friends it looks as though a rainbow has descended to earth, sir. Why, you were, sir, the finest silks and satins. Oh, see, John, those silken hose you wear were imported from France, weren't they? John, the satin on your back is a product of Great Britain, my enemy of late. See, John, the suit as you see me wear was spun by American hands from American-grown cotton. The seamstress is an American. The very buttons, sir, were forged in America. Mr. Adams, I'm an American. And so I would remind other people as well. Well, they came up to take the oath of office, and they handed me the Bible. I said, uh, Mr. President, to be, please put your hand on the Bible and take the oath of office. And I said, no, I will not put my hand on the Bible. I will put it in the Bible, sir. He says, well, I don't understand. Where would you like it to be? And I gave him the scripture in Genesis 49. I said, I want the Bible open to this spot, sir. And so they opened it up, and I put my right hand on it. They eventually traced my hand on it to show where it was, and I raised my left hand to the square, and I took the oath of office. But I added four words to it. So help me God. Mr. President, what was Genesis 49? Hmm. 
great meaning. The blessing upon Joseph, the son, whose branches would run over the wall, meaning a great body of water, to establish a new Jerusalem. We like that. I like that a lot. Now, Mr. President, I know you've had many, many significantly spiritual experiences over the course of your life. Um, and they're incredible experiences. I want you to share with our public uh, a couple of those experiences, if you would. Experiences that would not only shape you to become the individual you were, but also experiences that are going to go down in history to help uh, with the foundation of the restored gospel. Share a couple, if you would. Well, you know, it all began in 1755 when I was serving as a colonel of the Virginia militia under General Braddock of the British Army. We had been tasked with uh, 1,200 men to go and attack the French and Indian forces along the Monongahela River. Um, now, General Braddock was a good and honorable man, well-disciplined, trained, but he was as dumb as a fence post. And so I had told General Braddock, Braddock, uh, General, please understand. I was his direct aide. I says, understand, you are not in Europe. You do not fight the, in here as you would there. We hide behind the rocks and the trees. We attack our enemy, and therefore we kill them, and they do not kill us. Now, General Braddock looked at me. He says, oh, you're a British officer, sir. How dare you do such a thing? No, sir, we will do as we normally do. And so we watched, walked down the middle of this forest road wearing our beautiful bright coats with this white cross in the middle of our chest. You call it a bullseye, I believe, sir. And as we came closer, the French and Indians did exactly what I knew they would do. They attacked us from behind the, the trees and the rocks. And in that day, 965 British officers were killed and only 300 were able to survive and pulled back. Only 50 of the French and Indian were killed. The only reason anybody survived is because there was one officer on the field, his name was George Washington, who was untouched. Now, I was a very large man for my time, and I was on a very large horse, and I was sitting on three pillows because I had had dysentery and I did not feel good. But somehow, I came through the battle unharmed. And so, as I came out of the battle, I got off my horse uh, with my men surrounding me. I saw there was a bullet hole through my hat, and there were four through my coat. One on my chest, right over the, the heart, surrounded with powder burns. I knew that someone had been very close when they pulled that uh, trigger. And I wrote back, I said, somehow, I do not understand it, but I had been in the hands of Providence. Otherwise, I would have died on that field as well, and we would have been wiped out. So, 1755. Hmm. Fifteen years later, I came back to the same area. Um, this time as a surveyor, and I walked into an uh, open meadow in the forest, and out the other side came this very elderly Indian chief, Sahim, and he was very withered and aged, and he walked up with some help of some of his warriors, and he walked up to me and in beautiful English said, I had to meet the man God would not let die. I said, sir, chief, I don't understand. And he said, I was the commander of the Indian forces on the field that day, 15 years ago, and I knew if we could kill you, we would annihilate the British to the last man. And so I told my finest archers, my spearmen, and my gunmen, kill the man on that horse. Leave everyone else alone. And for the next two hours, every arrow, every spear, every bullet we could send was sent to you personally. We kept failing. Finally, my bowman came up to me. They explained. He says, you know, we, we shoot an arrow at this man. It goes straight towards him and then suddenly sinks to the earth. We throw a spear, but it's like he's surrounded with a glass wall. Our guns will not fire when they're aimed in his direction. This Indian chief said, indeed, I tried 17 times to kill you on the field that day myself, and I failed every time. I have never failed before. And I said to them, I said, hold, this man rests in the hands of the great spirit. 
And then this chief said something very important. He said, the great spirit is very strong in me, and I have had a vision. I've seen that you will become the leader of the greatest empire in the history of man, and that your name will be held in honor through all time. I wrote home about that. I said, to the marvel of my own mind, what is waiting for me? Perhaps there was another one you'd like to hear as well. Yes, I understand that you've had an encounter on occasion with a spiritual being of some sort, an angel. Sometimes, no matter how much you've been told by Indian Sikhims that you have a destiny, you start to doubt. In the beginning of the, uh, the war for independence, we were down to only 800 men. My men were going home rapidly, and there were 20,000 of the British facing us. And in the middle of the night, I was writing dispatches and uh, by candlelight, and um, suddenly as I was writing in despair, wondering, are they going to shoot me or are they going to hang me? The entire room lit up as if at noonday, and I looked up at the foot of the table, and here was a man dressed in robes of white, glorious beyond the sun. And this man pointed to me, and he said, Son of the Republic, arise, look and learn. Well, sir, one does not refuse that kind of an invitation. So I stood up next to this heavenly messenger, and I was given to show. He said there will come three great crises in the American people. Three times the people will be tested to their absolute limits, and the first one is this one now, this war for independence. But understand that inasmuch as this people worship God, stand by their God, God will raise friends in the earth. And then this messenger gave me a vision to see small villages and towns spreading across the continent as we drove away the British forces. But then he put his hand on my shoulder. He says, Son of the Republic, arise, look and learn. He says, in a hundred years comes the second crisis, much greater than the first. When the, when the original sin of slavery divides the American people, and I saw in the vision the American people dividing, killing each other. I saw sons being killed by their own fathers, mothers and daughters at their throats. A son seen as such bloodshed as I could not have imagined. And so, at that point when I was about ready to despair for the second crisis, this messenger grabbed the title of liberty and slammed it into the ground between these two warring forces and says, remember, you are brethren. The American people came to their senses, buried the sin of slavery, and America became, in vision, the greatest power in the history of man, with navies bestriding the world great villages and towns spreading across the continent. And then he said, but, son of the Republic, in 100 years comes yet the third crisis, the greatest ever to be faced by the American people, when the American people, in their arrogance, turn their faces from God, and God will turn his face away from the American people. And I saw armies arising out of Asia, Africa, and Europe arising invading the land, laying waste this land. I saw scenes of bloodshed I could not imagine. I turned my face away. And then the messenger says, but if the American people will return to their God, at that moment he gave me to see pillars of light descending into these warring factions with warriors descending to the earth clad in armor with great steel shields. He says, if the American people will remember, turn to their God again. In this greatest crisis, this nation will stand for all time. It's an incredible vision, incredible vision, certainly a sign of the times. Uh, but Mr. President, there are those that would, d despite all of these incredible visions and, and um, manifestations, there are those that would claim that you're not Christian. 
that you don't have uh, the Christian attitude or values. How would you respond to those kinds of thoughts? It depends on whether I let my temper loose or not. <laughs> Sir, they say I'm not a Christian. Very famously, there was a reporter after I had passed on into the eternal realms, figuring that he could not be harmed again, wrote a newspaper article saying, George Washington was not a good Christian. He didn't attend church regularly. He did not take communion. Had I been there, I would have reminded him it's a little difficult to do such things in the middle of an eight-year war. But I did demand that all of my soldiers took Holy Communion every Sunday, engage themselves in sacred services. And by the way, if they failed, I would have them horsewhipped. Well, the most important point was this reporter forgot that I had a daughter who took no prisoners. And Eleanor Park Custis Washington, my beloved Nellie, wrote back to this reporter, and I believe he is still bleeding to this day. She wrote to him, and she tore into him, and she said, How dare you accuse my grandfather of not being a Christian? Why don't you just accuse George Washington of not being an American? Uh, the man never worked again for the rest of his life as a reporter. He've had to find other employment because you don't mess with my Nelly. But, sir, let me remind you of something. Always outside of our uh, quarters hung the American flag to gaze upon and remind ourselves of who we were and what we were attempting to achieve with the 13 stars on it and with the stars and stripes. But outside, you'll help me, I hope, sir, outside of my headquarters flew this flag, sir. This was the command flag of General Washington. Now, you will notice there are two things different upon it. Uh, I don't see any stripes, and it looks like we have the Star of David. You have it exactly. See, I reminded people, I says, you know, as important as our national unity is, the most important thing we could possibly have, I said, I want everybody to know that I look to the heavens, the color of blue. We cannot win. We will not remain as a free nation if we do not rely upon God and providence to save us. It is not within the power of our own people. And the Star of David, very interesting. Yes, I believe we were establishing a new Israel upon this continent, a forerunner of the great temples that would come. Yeah. Mr. President, um, you've shared with us some incredible things. Um, in your opinion, what do we, we living now in this particular century and at this particular time, what do we need to do to keep the promise of America alive? the promise that you spent so much time and were so dedicated to creating literally for us, what do we do to keep it? It's really very simple. Go back to my farewell address. I wrote it only two years into my presidency because remember, I did not want to be president. I was hoping to end and go home. But I wrote an address to the American people and it is known as the farewell address. And in that I gave certain advice to the American people I wish that they would always remember. First of all, remember once again, you are Americans. You're not a hyphenated American of any type. You are Americans, and it is to this country and this country alone you owe your liberty and your loyalty. I counseled them to, to remember this. Avoid the spirit of political parties. The spirit of party will simply divide the people and bring us at each other's throats and divide us and destroy us because if we are divided, then our enemies wait for us. They know we are weak. Your loyalty is to your country. 
I counsel them, too, to avoid permanent entangling alliances with anyone else. In times of crisis, as it was with, uh, with the French, join hands as friends and fight the enemy and bring it to a successful conclusion. Seek victory. But when the victory is attained, then you shake hands, part as friends. And if you will remain that way for all time, you will not need to send your sons and your daughters around the world to die in foreign lands. I counsel them to remember, too, this document, the Constitution of the United States and the attended Declaration of Independence. These are sacred articles, sacred, beautiful. They were written, as James Madison said, through the finger of God himself. Do not frivolously invent upon these principles, or you will be insulting God. Most importantly, I suppose, the part that I wanted everybody to remember is you cannot be free in the absence of religion and morality. Man will be ruled by God, or he will be ruled by tyrants. There is no middle ground. This people must stand by their God. Everything in this document, everything in our history, reflects our dependence upon God. And if, if you abandon him, he will abandon you. Mr. President, your message is uh, loud and clear. Loud and clear. And it's very evident that you played an incredible role in paving the way for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you have any final thought you would like to leave with us? Well, simply this, you know that when you die, your spirit continues on. It's only the body that dies. We're quite aware of what you're doing in this land in this time. I have friends, a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith who stands with me. I tell you that though we may be departed in body, we are still around in spirit, and we're watching what you are doing with this country. Thank you, Mr. President. We appreciate you. Uh giving us the time today and uh, for those of you that are interested in wanting to uh, chat with visit with talk with uh, President Washington you're certainly welcome to do so through a good friend of mine from Kaysville Utah his name is Gary Van Dolzer we'll post Gary's email address for you so should you want to talk to General Washington President Washington you may do so again I want to thank our guest for being with us today and we'll look forward to continuing our discussion about the founding fathers and their involvement with sending the foundation that would enable the restoration of the gospel of jesus christ thank you for joining us today thank you